Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac Facelift Podcast, where we facelift you with literature. Don't know what that means, but let's move on. Can't believe Grunelich had only, uh, sorry, had one last try at it. Bloody Grunelich, he had just had to try that one last time. And then when that didn't work, he absolutely flipped his lid. And I love that last line by Buddenbrook Jr., Techrific says, this chapter reminded me of Hobbes. The life of a man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. All pretense is finally dropped. Stripped of all dignity, Grunlich finally removes his mask. Johann's final word, pray, succinctly wraps up this whole comedy in one front-loaded word. I guess it was directed as much to Grunlich as to himself. TA131901 says, well, I'm glad Tony is rid of Grunlich. Whew. And I will say that these few chapters were extremely compelling. I couldn't tear myself away. My kids were all like, Mom, Mom. And I was like, just hold on, I'm reading button books. But overall, I don't know. I'm kind of mad at man. All this drama seems contrived to me, false somehow. We're supposed to believe that an attractive, wealthy young woman from a highly respected and established family had no suitors beside Grunlich. Maybe if man had the console say, gosh, Betsy, we really have to consider Grunlich because all other rich single men in town are unacceptable for such and such reason, it would have made more sense. And then the console, console is totally fooled. We're told in part one that he has sharper business sense than his own father and what happened to it. And this particular chapter, I had the sense that I was watching something on stage, something contrived or acted, overacted. Finally, Grunlich himself is a hollow character. He's a villain that we can boo in a comic novel that would be fine like Austin's Mr. Collins but here it seems half-baked maybe he'll return later and explain himself I don't know none of this will stop me from reading by the way I want to know what happens well said it did feel a little bit kind of play acted didn't it a little bit ridic- ridiculous I like what you said about it feeling a bit like a stage show really well said I think now that you say that I think, yeah, the same thing. It, it did kind of feel like that. Chapter 10's long, so let's read it. A chastened mood reigned for some time at the old house in Meng Street after Madame Grunlich and her little daughter returned thither to take up their abode. The family went about rather subdued and did not speak much about it, with the exception of their chief actor in the affair, who, on the contrary, talked about in and it inexhaustibly, and was entirely in her element. Tony had moved with Erica into the rooms in the second story, which her parents had occupied in the time of the elder Buddenbrooks. She was a little disappointed to find that it did not occur to her papa to engage a servant for her, and she had rather a pensive half-hour when he gently explained that it would be fitting for her to live a retired life and give up the society of the town, for, though he said according to human judgments, she was an innocent victim of the fate which God had sent to try her, still her position as a divorced wife made a very quiet life advisable, particularly at first. But Tony possessed the gift of adaptability. She could adjust herself with ease and cheerfulness to any situation. She soon grew charmed with her role of the injured wife, returned to the house of her father's. A war-dark frocks dressed her ash-blonde hair primly like a girl's, 
like a young girl's, and felt richly repaid for her lack of society by the weight she had acquired in the household, the seriousness and dignity of her new position, and above all by her immense pleasure of being able to talk about her Grunlich and her marriage and to make general observations about life and destiny, which she did with utmost gusto. Not everybody gave her this opportunity, it is true. The Frau Consul was convinced that her husband had acted correctly and out of a sense of duty, but when Tony began to talk, she would put up her lovely white hand and say, Azus, my child, I do not like to hear about it. Clara, now twelve years old, understood nothing, and Cousin Clothilde was just as stupid. Oh, Tony, that was all she could say withdrawing astonishment, but the young wife found an attentive listener in Mamsel Jungmann, who was now 35 years old and could boast of having grown grey in the service of the best society. You don't need to worry, Tony, my child, she would say. You are young. You will marry again. And she devoted herself to the upbringing of little Erica, telling her the same stories, the same memories of her youth, to which the consul's children had listened 15 years before, and in particular of that uncle, who died of hiccups at Marin Werder because his heart was broken. But it was with her father that Tony talked most and longest. She liked to catch him after the noonday meal or in the morning at early breakfast. The relations had grown closer and warmer, for her feeling had been heretofore one of awe and respect rather than affection on account of his high position in the town, his piety, his solid sternability and industry. During that talk in her own salon, he had come humanely near to her and it had filled her with pride and emotion to be found worthy of that serious and confidential consultation. He, the infallible parent, had put the decision into her hands. He had confessed almost humbly to a sense of guilt. Such an idea would never have entered Tony's head of itself, but since he said it, she believed it and her feeling for him had thereby grown warmer and tenderer. As for the consul, he believed himself bound to make up to his daughter for her misfortune by redoubled love and care. Johann Buddenbrook had himself taken no steps against his untrustworthy son-in-law. Tony and her mother did hear from him in the course of conversation what a dishonourable means Grunlich had used to get hold of the 80,000 marks, but the consul was careful to give the matter no publicity. He did not even consider going to the courts with it. He felt wounded in his pride as a merchant, and he wrestled silently with the disgrace of having been so thoroughly taken in. But he pressed the divorce suit energetically as soon as the failure of Grunlich came out, which it soon did, thereby causing no inconsiderable losses to certain Hamburg firms. It was this suit and the thought that she herself was a principal in it that gave Tony her most delicious and indescribable feelings of importance. Father, she said, for in these conversations she never called him Papa. Father, how is our affair going on? Do you think it will be all right? The paragraph is perfectly clear. I have studied it. Incapacity of the husband to provide for his family. Surely they will say that is quite plain. If there were a son, Grunlich would keep him. Another time, she said, I have thought a great deal about the four years of my marriage, father. That was certainly the reason the man never wanted us to live in the town, which I was so anxious to do. That was the reason he never liked me even to be in the town or go into society. The danger was much greater there than in Eimsbüttel of my hearing, somehow or other, how things stood. 
What a scoundrel. We must not judge, my child, answered the consul, or, when the divorce was finally pronounced, have you entered it in the family papers, father? No, then I'd better do it. Please, give me the key to the secretary. With bustling pride, she wrote beneath the lines she had set there four years ago under her name. The marriage was dissolved by law in February 1850. Then she put away the pen and reflected a minute. Father, she said, I understand very well that this affair is a blot on our family history. I have thought about it a great deal. It is exactly as if there were a spot of ink in the book here. But never mind. That is my affair. I will erase it. I am still young. Don't you think I am still quite pretty? Though Frau Sturt, when she saw me again, said to me, Oh, heavens, Mademoiselle Grunlich, how old you've grown. Well, I certainly couldn't remain all my life the goose I was four years ago. Life takes one along with it. Anyhow, I shall marry again. You will see everything can be put right by a good marriage. That is in God's hand, my child. It is the most unfitting to speak of such things. Tony began at this time to use very frequently the expression, such is life. And with the word life, she would open her eyes wide with a charming, serious look, indicating the deep insight she had acquired into human affairs and human destinies. Thomas returned from Powell in August of that year. The dining table was opened out again, and Tony had a fresh audience for her tale. She loved and looked up to her brother, who had felt for her pain in that departure from Travamundi, and she respected him as the future head of the firm and the family. Yes, yes, he said. We've both of us gone through things, Tony. The corner of his eyebrow went up, and his cigarette moved from one corner of his mouth to the other. His thoughts were probably with the little flower girl with the Malay face, who had lately married the son of her employer, and now herself carried on the shop in Fisher's Lane. Thomas Buddenbrook Though still a little pale, was strikingly elegant. The last few years had entirely completed his education. His hair was brushed so that it stood out in two clumps above his ears, and his moustache was trimmed in the French mode with sharp points that were stiffened with the tongs and stuck straight out. His stocky, broad-shouldered figure had an almost military air. His constitution was not of the best. The blue veins showed too plainly at the narrow temples, and he had a slight tendency to chills, which good Dr. Grabal struggled with in vain, in the details of his physical appearance, the chin, the nose, and especially the hands, which were wonderfully true to the Buddenbrook type, his likeness to his grandfather was more pronounced than ever. He spoke French with a distinctly Spanish accent, and astonished everybody by his enthusiasm for certain modern writers of the satiric and polemic characters. Broker Gosh was the only person in the town who sympathised with his tastes. His father strongly reprehended them. But the father's pride and joy in the eldest son were plain to see. They shone in the consul's eye. He welcomed him joyfully home as his colleague in the firm and himself began to work with increased satisfaction in his office, especially after the death of old Madame Kroger, which took place at the end of the year. The old lady's loss was one of the one to be borne with resignation. She had grown very old and lived quite alone at the end. She went to God and the firm of Buddenbrooks received a large sum of money, around 100,000 thaler, which strengthened the working capital of the business in a highly desirable way. The consul's brother-in-law, Justus, weary of continual business disappointments as soon as he had his hands on his inheritance, settled his business and retired. The gay son of the Cavalier Alamode was not a happy man. 
He had been too careless, too generous to attain a solid position in the mercantile world, but he had already spent a considerable part of his inheritance, and now Jacob, his oldest son, was the source of fresh cares. To him, the young man had become addicted to light, not to say disreputable, society in the great city of Hamburg. He had cost his father a huge sum in the course of years, and when Consul Kroger refused to give him more, the mother... A weak, sickly woman sent money secretly to the son, and wretched clouds had sprung up between husband and wife. The final blow came at the very time when B. Grunlich was making his failure. Something happened to Dahlbeck and company in Hamburg, where Jacob Kroger worked. There had been some kind of dishonesty. It was not talked about. No questions were asked of Gustus Kroger, but it got about that Jacob had a position as travelling man in New York and was about to sail. He was seen once in the town before his boat left, and foppishly dressed, unwholesome-looking youth. He had probably come hither to get more money out of his mother, besides the passage money his father sent him. It finally came about that Justice spoke exclusively of my son, as though he had none but the one heir, his second son, Jürgen, who would certainly never be guilty of a false step, but who seemed, on the other hand, to be mentally limited. He had had difficulty getting through the high school, after which he spent some time in Jena, studying law, evidently without either pleasure or profit. Johann Buddenbrook felt keenly the cloud on his wife's family and looked with more anxiety to the future of his own children. He was justified in placing the utmost confidence in the ability and earnestness of his older son. As for Christian, Mr. Richardson had written that he showed an unusual gift for acquiring English but no genuine interest in the business. He had a great weakness for the theatre and for other distractions of the great city. Christian himself wrote that he had a longing to travel and see the world. He begged eagerly to be allowed to take a position over there, which meant in South America, perhaps in Chile. That's simply love of adventure, the consul said, and told him to remain with Mr. Richardson for another year and acquire mercantile experience. There followed an exchange of letters on the subject with the result that in the summer of 1851 Christian Buddenbrook sailed to Valparaiso, Valparaiso where he had hunted up a position. He travelled direct from England without coming home. So much for his two sons. As for Tony, the consul was gratified to see that with what self-possession she defended her position in the town of Buddenbrook born. For a divorced wife, she had naturally to overcome all sorts of prejudice on the part of the other families. Oh, she said, coming back with flushed cheeks from a walk and throwing her hat on the sofa in the landscape room. This Juliette Mullendorf, or Hagenstrom, or Semblinger, whatever she is, the creature. Imagine, Mama, she doesn't speak. She doesn't say, how do you do? She waits for me to speak first. What do you say to that? I passed her in Broad Street with my head up and looked straight at her. You go too far, Tony. There is a limit to everything. Why shouldn't you speak first? You're the same age, and she is a married woman, just as you were. Never, Mama. Never understand the shi- never under the shining sun. Such ragtag and bobtail. Is this, my love, such vulgar expressions? Oh, it makes me feel perfectly beside myself. Her hatred of the upstart family was fed by the mere thought that the Hagenstroms might now feel justified in looking down on her, especially considering the present good fortune of the clan. Old Hinrich had died at the beginning of 1851, and his son Herman, he of the lemon buns and the boxes on the ear, was doing a very brilliant business with her strunk as partner. He had married less than a year later the daughter of Consul Hanius, 
the richest man in town who had made enough out of his business to leave each of his three children two million marks. Herman's brother Moritz, despite his lung trouble, had a brilliant career as a student and had now settled down in the town to practice law. He had a reputation for being able, witty and literary and soon acquired a considerable business. He did not look like the Semlingers, having a yellow face and pointed teeth with wide spaces between. Even in the family, Tony had to take care to hold her head up. Uncle Gotthold's temper toward his fortunate stepbrother had grown more mild and resigned now that he had given up business and spent his time carefree in the modest house, munching lozenges out of a tin box. He loved sweets, still considered his three unmarried daughters. He could not have failed to feel a quiet satisfaction over Tony's unfortunate adventure, and his wife, born stewing, and his three daughters, 26, 27, and 28 years old, showed an exaggerated interest in their cousin's misfortune and the divorce proceedings, more in fact than they had in her betrothal and wedding. When the children's Thursdays began again in Men's Street, after old Madame Kroger's death, Tony found it no easy work to defend herself. Oh, heavens, you poor thing, said Fifi, the youngest who was little and plump, with a droll way of shaking herself at every word. A drop of water always came in the corner of her mouth when she spoke. She, has the decree been pronounced? Are you exactly as you were before? On the contrary, said Han Henriette who, like her elder sister, was extraordinarily tall and withered-looking. You are much worse off than if you had never married at all. Yes, Friedrich chimed in. Then it is ever so much better never to have married at all. Oh no, dear Friedrich, said Tony, erecting her head while she bethought herself of a telling and clever retort. You make a mistake there. Marriage teaches one to know life, you see. One is no longer a silly goose, and then I have more prospect of marrying again than those who have never married at all. Oh, cried the others with one voice. They said it with a long hissing intake of breath, which made it sound very sceptical indeed. Sesame Wishbrot was too good and tactful even to mention the subject. Tony sometimes visited her former teacher in the little red house in Millenbrink number no. 7. It was still occupied by a troop of girls, though... The boarding school was slowly falling out of fashion. The lively old maid who was always invited to Meng Street on occasion to partake in a haunch of venison or a stuffed goose. She always raised herself on tiptoe to kiss Tony on the forehead with a little exploding noise. Madame Kethelson, her simple sister, had grown rapidly deaf and had understood almost nothing of Tony's affair. She still laughed a painfully hearty laugh on the most unsuitable occasions and Sesame still felt it necessary to rap on the table and cry, Nelly. Two years went on. Gradually, people forgot their feelings over Tony's affair. She herself would only think now and then of her married life when she saw on Erica's healthy, hearty little face some expression that reminded her of Bendix Grunlich. She dressed again in colours, wore her hair in the old way, and made the same old visits into society. Still, she was always glad that she had the chance to be away from the town for some time in the summer. The consul's health made it necessary for him to visit various cures. Oh, what it is to grow old, he said. If I get a spot of coffee on my trousers and put a drop of cold water on it, I have rheumatism. When one is young, one can do anything, he suffered at times also from spells of dizziness. They went to 
Obsulasbrun to Ems and to Baden-Baden. To Kissingen, whence they made a delightful and edifying journey to Nuremberg and Munich, Munich and the Salzburg neighborhood, to Ischl and Vienna and Prague, Dresden, Berlin, and home again. Madame Grunlich had been suffering from a nervous affection of the digestion and was obliged to take a strenuous cure of the bath, but nevertheless she found the journey a highly desirable change, for she did not conceal her opinion that it was a little slow at home. Heavens, yes, you know how it is, father, she would say, regarding the ceiling with a thoughtful air. Of course I have learned what life is like, but just for that reason it is rather a dull prospect for me to be always sitting here at home like a stupid goose. That's the fourth time this chapter said the word goose. I hope you don't think I mean I do not like to be with you, Papa. I ought to be whipped. If I did, it would be so ungrateful. But I only mean life is like that, you know. The hardest thing she had to bear was the increasing piety of her parents' home. The consul's religious fervor grew upon him in a proportion as he himself felt the weight of years and infirmity, and his wife too, as she got older, began to find the spiritual side to her taste. Prayers had always been customary in the Buddenbrook house, but now for some time the family and the servants had assembled mornings and evenings in the breakfast room to hear the master read the Bible. And the visits of ministers and missionaries increased more and more from year to year. The godly patrician house in Meng Street, where, by the way, such good diners were to be dinners were to be had, had been known for years as a spiritual haven to the Lutheran and Reformed clergy to both foreign and home missions. Excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, foreign and home missions. From all quarters of the fatherland came long-haired, black-coated gentlemen to enjoy the pious and decourse and the nourishing meals, and to be furnished with the sinews of their spiritual warfare. The ministers of the town went in and out as friends of the house. Tom was much too, dis- too discreet and prudent even to let one, anyone see him smile, but Tony mocked quite openly. She even sad. She, even, sad to say, made fun of these pious worthies whenever she had a chance. Sometimes when the Frau Consul had a headache, it was Tony's turn to play the housekeeper and order the dinner. One day, when a strange clergyman, whose appetite was the subject of general hilarity, was a guest, Tony mischievously mischievously ordered bacon broth, the famous local dish, a bouillon made with sour cabbage in which was served the entire meal. Ham, potatoes, beetroot, cauliflower, peas, beans, pearls, sour plums, and goodness knows what, juice and all. A dish which nobody except those born to it could possibly eat. I do hope you are enjoying the soup, her pastor, she said several times. No, oh dear, who would have thought it? And she made a very roguish face and ran her tongue over her lips, a trick she had when she thought of some prank or another. The fat man laid down his spoon resignedly and said mildly, I will wait till the next course. Yes, the Frau Consul said hastily, there is a little something afterwards. But a next course was unthinkable after this mighty dish, and despite the French toast and apple jelly which finished the meal, the reverend guest had to rise hungry from the table while Tony tittered, and Tom with fine self-control lifted one eyebrow. Another time Tony stood with Stina, the cook, in domestic discourse in the entry when Pastor Matthias from Canastart, 
who was stopping a few days in the house, came back from a walk and rang out the outer door. Stina ran to open with her peasant waddle, and the pastor, with the view of saying an edifying word and testing her a little, asked in a friendly tone, Do you love the master? Perhaps he had the idea of giving her a tip if she professed herself on the side of the saviour. Lord, her pastor, said Stina, trembling and blushing with wide eyes. Which one do her pastors mean? To old, un, or to young one? Madame Gunlich did not fail to tell the story at the table, so that even the Frau Consul burst out into a sputtering Kroger laugh. The Consul, however, looked down in displeasure at his plate. A misunderstanding, said Herr Matthias, highly embarrassed. Alright, there's that chapter. My brain's much... I don't even... I can't even tell you what that chapter's about. Literally don't know. Don't even know. Alright, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.